Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. As we reach the end of January 2021, there have been a lot of moments that we will always remember about this particular moment in American history. Perhaps one of the most powerful and inspiring moments that we will never forget was brought to us by Amanda Gorman, the 22-year-old Black woman who became the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history, reciting her now infamous poem, The Hill We Climb, during Joe Biden's inauguration. Here at the Speaking of Racism podcast, we wanted to focus on Black women's voices and the literary arts. So that's why earlier this month, we brought you an episode with poet, author, activist, Jessica Caremore from Detroit. If you missed that episode, be sure to go back and check it out. She recites one of her poems, Where Are the People? And today I am incredibly honored to be in conversation with Tressie McMillan Cotton. Tressie is a sociologist, a writer, and a public scholar shaping discourse on pressing issues at the confluence of race, gender, education, and digital technology. In work across multiple platforms, ranging from academic scholarship to essays and social media engagement, Macmillan Cotton combines analytical insights and personal experiences in a frank, accessible style of communication that resonates with broad audiences within and outside of academia. I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with Tressie Macmillan Cotton. So welcome to the show, Tressie. Thank you so much for being here and for your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you are one of the 2020 MacArthur Fellowship recipients. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about that process and what that means for you. Um, as far as, you know, they, they reference it as the genius grant. You are, you've joined the ranks of folks who have also received this award, including Tenahasi Coates, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. What are your, what are your thoughts and what's that process been like for you? Oh, well, the process, who knows? It's a, it's also a really weird time. I think with COVID, uh, going on, I'm not sure what thing destabilizes you the most? It's all destabilizing. But I don't know if that is being named a MacArthur Fellow or the fact that we are in the middle of a global health pandemic or that, you know, all these sort of weird uh, uh, starts and stops to social isolation. It is destabilizing, though, uh, in a good way, unlike the pandemic, at least, uh, in that it is unexpected, which is the nature of the award. It is a um, symbol of other people's esteem for you and your work, which is very flattering um, because you have to be nominated by so many people and go through so many sort of, uh, you know, what we know of the process is is pretty murky, but, you know, it's just this really, you know, long drawn out affair uh, throughout which a lot of people weigh in on your contribution uh, to your field or to public life. And so it is, um, 
fascinating and a little bizarre in retrospect to think that people were sitting around judging that and you had no idea it was happening uh, <laughs> because it's so so funny to think about the things they must they must have seen as they were considering it. I tell people all the time, you know, I cuss on Twitter and uh, I was like, oh, I was probably cussing on Twitter when they were trying to decide if I was a MacArthur Fellow. Isn't that delightful? Uh, so it's wonderful. It is life changing in that it does offer something that I think women scholars in particular don't get very often and black women scholars almost never get, which is freedom, right? That's what it offers you. It offers you fundamentally freedom, freedom to decide uh, what projects you will pursue, freedom to decide how you pursue them and uh, to set your own clock about doing that. That kind of freedom is uh, life-changing. So tell me a little bit about the book about Thick and how you came to write that group of essays and what do you feel um, is most, what you want black women to take away from, from that collection? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it is fundamentally a book written for black women. That is my assumed reader for that book, uh, which really did determine a lot of the other choices. It determines uh, you know, what I will and will not explain. It determines what I assume is the default uh, knowledge base uh, that the reader brings to the text. And I'm thrilled when any reader finds something valuable uh, in the text, but I am particularly thrilled when Black women do. Um, and I always say, you know, any, anybody as a reader, readership goes, you know, anything other than Black women is just sort of gravy on top. But if Black women readers read it and find something useful or valuable about either the reflection of themselves or about learning about another Black woman's experience and perspective on the world, then I had done my job. Uh, the collection of essays came about because of a Black woman at the time, my editor at the New Press, um, who I blame and credit for this book all of the time, uh, because I had just uh, finished coming off of a pretty aggressive book tour for my very first book and was in a still fairly new academic job as a tenure track professor when she approaches me and goes, you know, I really think you should consider putting together some of your essays. I've been writing essays uh, uh, for public venues and uh, in media at that point for almost 10 years. And we started out by thinking that we were just going to bring together some of my, you know, most read pieces, maybe rework them a little bit, just to sort of give sort of like a cohesive review of my public intellectual life and work. Uh, and I told her I thought she was crazy one. I said, I don't see the audience for this. I don't understand. I don't understand what this is. Um, and I remember saying, not now. Like, you know, I mean, I was exhausted. <laughs> In many ways, though, that ended up, I think it shaped the voice of the book. Because I was at a place, uh, I think maybe women in particular will understand this moment. You know, when you're just so tired that you no longer have the energy for any pretense? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're tired. So you don't, you just stop pretending. Yeah. Um, that is actually absolutely what happened in writing this book, which was <laughs> I was tired and I was like, F it, I, I'm going to do this. And it, strangely enough, um, is why I think the voice is so clear in the text um, and why the point of view and the articulation of what I believe became so crystal clear. Because when your energy stores are low, you have to make really tough decisions about what's worth your time. You know, and, you know, and pretending wasn't worth my time or energy. Translating myself for white audiences was not worth my limited energy, you know. Um, and so in many ways, it helped me just kind of cut through a lot of the crap that we sometimes put on ourselves, I think, when we're writing for, for the public. 
And and writing it is exactly what ended up happening. While we started with the idea of putting together previously published pieces, everything in this book, except for one essay, was either brand new or a complete revision of uh, a previous piece. Uh, And that was because it became clear to me that I was in a different place intellectually than I had been when I wrote some of those other pieces. And I always believe in giving the reader the best of you at that moment. You know, you you do the best you can in that moment, understanding that your best will be different some other time. Um, But in that moment, I wanted the reader to have the very best of what I could do. And so I ended up rewriting uh, the whole thing. So it's all a Black woman's fault. Which it's a beautiful, (laughs) a beautiful fault of your uh, your editor. Tara, we got a shout out, Tara. Yeah, (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I'd love to read a quote from uh, an article that CNN published about you. Um, And this is what you say here is public discourse benefits when we have a deeper, richer set of discursive tools to talk about social problems. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that we'll socialize and condition a listener to expect the voice of authority or the voice of expertise to be a complex African-American woman's voice. Yeah, that's it. Will you say more? That's beautiful and important and necessary. You know, we we are socialized and trained, uh, quite frankly, through social institutions, through our friends and family, our peer groups over the course of our life. We are trained to hear. And we think of hearing as being like a biological thing. And that is, right? Or as my grandmother used to say, I know you heard me, but were you listening? (laughs) Right? The socialized part is listening, listening. We are trained to listen to some voices and not others. And part of that process happens in the public domain about who becomes the default voice of authority and expertise. So even though you may have in the voice in your head, you know, when you're young, the voice in your head, which is your conscience, (laughs) it's usually inherited from your parents. And, uh, you know, for a long time, the voice probably sounds like your mother. It's your mother's voice. Don't don't do that. Don't touch that. As you grow up and you develop your own inner self, the voice should switch to your own voice. Now, some of us just get multiple voices, which is also fun, but it should switch to your own voice. You become your own inner conscience. Uh, W.B. Du Bois, however, talks about the double consciousness or the two-ness of being Black. Mm. And what Black folk get that other people do not develop uh, is an internal voice that they get from the external world. It is the white voice of authority that we know can judge us, can circumscribe our lives and our potential and our abilities and our well-being, our health and well-being. White people don't get a second internal voice, right? So the only other competing uh, voice that the general population gets is the one usually that we inherit through osmosis from media and from culture. And when that voice sounds just like the voice that produced you, you know, white, middle class, Midwestern, you know, is the default voice of the news. Um, You know, white and Northeastern and male is the default voice of public media. (laughs) Um, uh, White and female is the default voice of pop music, right? We have all, but all of them default to white. And so what happens is that our public life becomes attuned to a white perspective of the world that does not develop equally everybody's ability to understand their own voice 
and to develop empathy for other people's voices. All right. Some people never learn their limits and they, they never learn to negotiate them with other people. Um, and there is a place in public life for us to train people differently, to assume that expertise or knowledge or authority, or at the very least, a legitimate opinion can come in a voice that sounds different from your own, in a voice that sounds different from your mother's, that that's the one you still got in your head. Um, and that that is really important to giving us the ability to not just hear, but to listen. Absolutely. And are you encouraged by the number of Black women in particular in academia? Um, You were among three Black women who were granted this award. So are you, does that encourage you or do you still feel like we have so much more to go? What are your thoughts about? Both are true and can be true and usually are true at the same time, which is You know, I always take um, comfort from seeing us in places where we have not previously been. Um, And this was a particularly Black year, which is always fun. (laughs) Uh, But I never want to confuse these pockets of like individual accolades or achievement, social change, right? I just think Um, because it leaves behind people that I care about uh, quite a bit, right? It leaves behind uh, Black folks um, who aren't in public life or who don't go to college or, um, you know, it just leaves behind a lot of people that I care a great deal about. The trick for me is how do you translate those pockets of individual merit and achievement of individual Black folk into more for more Black people? Like, how do you do that? That's the trick, Um, which I must say, I know my other uh, MacArthur fellows, as uh, Jackie Woodson actually called us. I mean, MacArthur fellow cousins is what she called us. And I know the other Black women. And uh, I think all of us share that perspective on this award, that it is an individual achievement, like most Black people, though, that our individual achievements are also about our collective progress and that we see our work as being part of a struggle to make our individual achievement matter collectively. So yeah, I'm both encouraged and think that we always still have quite a ways to go. How, how do you enter into conversations about your experience through um, as a Black woman and racist experiences that you've had in your career, in your writing, in your um, teaching? How do you um, interpret some of your experiences and, and, and then translate that to be something that, you, that, you, that helps you to grow? Yeah, I don't know if I needed racism to grow. <laughs> In fact, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say we don't need it to grow. I will say that there, what does happen, I think, intellectually, especially as a sociologist and a social scientist and a person who writes, one of the things I try to do when I write is to find the parts of my personal experience that have some larger meaning right, that connect to these things that happen to other people and other groups of people. So it is, you know, finding the, you know, the old canard, you know, finding the specific uh, to make it uh, generalizable. And um, and th- that means that not everything that happens to me has that. Some things really do just happen to you. I think sometimes people think that Black folk are uh, obsessed uh, with racism. And I go, well, yeah, no, that's just because you only pay attention to us when a racism happens. We think about things, all this, you know, tons of things happen to us and we're perfectly reasonable usually about why they happen. I don't think everybody cuts me off in traffic or every net bad experience at the store is racist. It's just that I know when one of them is racist. And, uh, 
you know, so we have like these really full lives. And so everything that doesn't happen, everything that happens to me is not necessarily the kind of specific detail that has the potential to become a critique of a collective experience. But the artistry for me is in finding those moments to find the moments in my personal journey, especially my intellectual journey, where something happened and there is a fuller picture to be explicated. And to try to figure out who the characters were and what the processes were that made that moment happen. You know, in sociology, we talk about the intersection of our personal histories, our personal biographies um, with collective history, that we're always living both. There's the stuff that just shaped me, you know, the people who raised you, where you grew up, that kind of thing, your personal biography. And then there's the moment you are born into. And that moment, that intersection, other people are born into that moment with you. And part of what I'm trying to find out is what is common to that experience? What is, you know, so what are the parts that are just about me? But what are the parts that are about us? And so when I reflect on these things that have happened where racism has shaped my perspective or, you know, positionality in the world um, has shaped, as I say in the text, how I fix my feet, um, you know, how I shape my response to the world. I'm looking for the moments that isn't just about saying it's racist, but about saying how this racist moment or interaction says something valuable about the lives of other people. That's the intellectual and the creative project. Now, I like to think I could uh, find that um, even without the racism, but you know, we'll never know. <laughs> we won't know right now. <laughs> this is this is the soup. This is the soup we were born into. These are this is what we inherited. So you know, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> and and can you share some of the things that you appreciate and love the most about both Black womanhood and Black sisterhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I love, uh, one of my favorite things about Black women is to hear us talk. Yes. Uh, you know, nobody talks like us. And, you know, when I watch a movie, for example, um, or, you know, a TV show or something that I think gets it right, that represents how, and it doesn't happen often, uh, actually, strangely enough. I suspect it must be really hard to capture the energy of, our interactions on film, because I'm actually often surprised by how often, even when there are like a lot of Black actresses in a film or something, they don't get that, they don't get the magic of how we talk. <laughs> um, and it's because we talk over each other. We have, my friend is a, uh, one of my best friends is a literature professor, or as I like to uh, say when I'm making fun of her, a literature professor. <laughs> and one of the things <laughs> that we talk about is how we are always having multiple conversations at one time. Yes. A Black woman's conversation is always unfolding on multiple levels simultaneously. Um, and when you're with your, you know, your real friends, your real sisters, you're all doing it at the same time. You're all having three conversations at the same time. It is exhilarating. Uh, when I'm in those discursive waters where we're like, you know, and the rhythm is right and everybody... You know, it's a collective song making, a collective storytelling. Um, and I love that about us because it is something, it is one of those things. Like uh, I was saying earlier, the way we talk to each other is an intersection of our biography and our and history. 
It is that that intersection because it is something that you're both socialized into. You have to inherit a lot of this and be socialized into it. And that you also are socialized into it in the same way other sisters are at the same time. You know, like it is amazing to me how I can uh, drop something on Twitter, for example, uh, a comment or a lyric with no context. And all of the Black women know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. I love that. I love the code encoded, the complex code encoded, decoding process that we do. It's one of my favorite things, which I think is foundational to your other question. It's foundational to how sister, Black sisterhood works. It is picking up on each other's cues and accurately decoding all of the code in a sister's conversation, right? Uh, so foundational, I think, to how we navigate the world. It gives us a sense of safety and place no matter where you are. That can overhear a sister in a, you know, in a Walmart in Oklahoma as I'm driving cross country and instantly feel a sense of place in her conversation, right? I could be out of time, out of place, out of, you know, in a strange land, and yet I will hear it. And by the way, it's not just an American thing. When I travel abroad, it's so funny because you can tell, I mean, the diaspora lives, and how we speak to each other. It does. Lives in our food, lives in how we talk, and lives in our music. I can be standing, and have been before, standing in the middle of Ghana or South Africa. Don't a bit more know the language than the man in the moon, but I know this sound. <laughs> I know that everywhere in the diaspora. We are so yeah. familiar with that. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, I know that. Everywhere, I love that about us. <laughs> I love that. I love that about us as well. I, I was. Uh, I, I am currently living in Jamaica, mm-hmm. and there are so many Black women, uh, in particular American Black women, that I have built a community with that are mm-hmm. here. And it's that same. It is that same experience, um, whether it is with local Jamaican women or whether it's with um, the American Black women, where we. Yeah instantly feel a sense of security and comfort um, and joy in one another's presence and company. It's, it's unmatched. It's not anything that I have seen um, take place in other cultures, Yep. but it's something about when black women see one another, we don't have to even know each other. We can, but it's this instant where we, it's family. Yeah. Yep. And that I, I asked that question thinking about you and Roxanne Gay and your mm-hmm. podcast Here yeah. to Slay. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. How long have you been doing the podcast and what's that like for, for both of you? That's a great question because what even is time anymore? What year? What right, year? Right, right. We're in the second season, but I don't know what that means for calendar time. I think it's been about a year and a half now, maybe going on almost two years, maybe at the end of this year. Um so funny you say it that way because I swear to you that's the origin story of the podcast that Roxanne and I are friends and you know have been for years and I think she was touring difficult women she might have still been touring on bad feminists I'm not sure uh, when you got a book that is as big as bad feminist you tour on it forever uh, so she may have still been touring bad, bad feminists and. I was between, uh, she'd been an early reader of Thick. So even before it came out, you know, uh, she she was so kind and she loved it and she endorsed it. And so she was doing a, a talk somewhere or something and they were looking for, you know, an interlocutor uh, for as these things often go. And she's like, oh, you know, the person I want to talk to is Tressie. Tressie, you know, come on out. I said, yeah, sure. And I happen to have the moment, you know, it's literally, let's go talk to my friend and other people will be there, but, you know, let's go talk to my friend. And we are in one of those places where there are no black people. Where are we? We're in the middle of New Mexico. 
God bless the indigenous people, at least were there. But yeah, we're in the middle of New Mexico and not even like Santa Fe. We're in a major area. We were out in a sort of like um, rural suburb kind of vacation resort town. Um, and so, you know, it's just us, a handful of indigenous folks and a lot of white people, and which is fine, lovely. And we do the event and we have a ball, an actual literal ball. And I actually, I think the talk is online. If anybody can ever, if you find it, if I could think of the name of the theater that hosted us, but we had such a good time on the way back, we were sharing a car back to the hotel and Roxanne is like, I wish I had more moments like that. Like my, you know, so much of when you're on the road and this is, it's a grind, especially when you write the kinds of things that Roxanne and I write about can be, you know, quite a, you know, it takes a lot out of you. In her case, the you know, night after night, talk about sexual violence and fat phobia, et cetera. In my case, night after night to talk about racism uh, and oppression and inequality. And we were like, we wanted to have fun and we have fun together. Uh, and the way we started, she was like, people have been asking me to do a podcast. I said, my God, people are always asking me too. I said, but neither one of us wanted the work of shouldering that. As you know how that is, that's a lot of work, shouldering yeah. all of that ourselves. But if we did it together, this would be great. And the way we pitched it was, if you could capture the rhythm of our conversation and turn that into a script, right? If you could, if you could structure a show to sound like how we sound when we are talking to each other, the rhythm of a black woman's conversation, we said, that's the show. That's going to be the show. Um, And we're very proud, you know, every podcast, you know, yeah, I don't have to tell you this. It takes so long to get your feet under you. Um, And I think our first season is just absolutely that us getting our feet beneath us um, pacing, scripting, you know, how we're going to use guests and idea ideation and all of that. Um, but the second season has been, I think for both of us, a real blast, um, because we have some of that out of the way and it is us having a black feminist sort of daily show approach to the life in the world. So a mix of serious stuff. We don't shy away from serious topics, but we say, we talk about it the way black women do the black women we know do, which is like, yeah, we know the ocean is boiling and they're probably going to steal the election. But we also know that Black women have had, uh, you know, a road to hold the entire time we've been here, you know? So like we have a perspective on things, which is, it's bad, but hey, it's always been kind of bad, but we've always thrived. Always. We've always found joy. Mm. We have always loved. We have always created. Slaves were creating enslaved people were doing creative works. Are you out of your mind? How dare I not? How dare we? How dare we not find a space for creative works <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic? Yes, but in the middle of the 21st century where we have every affordance available to us. How dare we not? So we try to find the joy in it too. And uh, we have a really good time doing it. And that's beautiful that you you say that and you point that out. How we are honoring our ancestors by taking advantage of experiencing the fullness of joy and, and creativity and, and, and pleasure and, and liber as we are working towards uh, black collective liberation. I've heard Angela Davis and like Sonia Sanchez and, you know, some of the, you know, the, all right, I'm not going to call them elder states women because that's the insane reverend. You know what I mean? The, the, the OGs, I've heard them say this so many times over the years in talks or whatever, how important joy and pleasure 
and community and collective effervescence is to movement work, their movement work. And I mean, if Angela Davis and Sonia Sanchez and, uh, you know, Barbara Ransby and all these people can find, surely we can too. I mean, you know, it can, it can clearly be done. And I think we're responsible for doing it. I, I, I think that's the, I think it's the unique beauty of the Black experience, frankly. Nobody knows how to find joy like we do in the midst of sorrow. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Absolutely. So if you weren't writing and teaching and speaking about racism and oppression and equity, would you be doing something else? Is there something in your heart that you... Oh, it's a wonderful question. Uh, you know, this brings us back full circle uh, in that the MacArthur opens up potentials for your dreams that you maybe, you know, you would have maybe gotten around to dreaming, but, you know, when you had time and then suddenly you have time. And it's like, you know, you spend the first couple of weeks just in a daze, or at least I did. Uh, and then you do start thinking. And I do have to remind myself, my mother's job these days is to text me uh, to remind me that I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. <laughs> she just texted me yesterday, just a reminder. You know, I'm doing anything you don't want to do, little girl. Uh, mm-hmm. Because then the question becomes, oh, what do I want to do? What do I want, what to, do? I want to do? I'm extremely fortunate in that over the last 10 years, which is when I went back to graduate school and embarked upon academic work, I have um, been able to do that. You know, I, I, I hit those marks and I and I feel like I achieved the goals that I had written out for myself. Um, and I am a goal writer. I write them down every year on a piece of paper. You know, I'm one of those people. Um, I'm not a full out vision board girl, but I do my own my own version of visioning. And, and then I'll go back and look. And I looked at the last one I wrote, which is now about a year and a half ago. I looked at it last month. And I was able to check everything off. How fortunate and blessed, right? Exactly. Absolutely. That is a such a blessing in my heart moment. Absolutely. And so my life right now is figuring out what were those secret dreams beneath. I so far I can tell you what I've worked out. I I'm leaning into the things I love. I enjoy, truly enjoy audio storytelling. Mm-hmm. I enjoy collaborative space of like uh, creative uh, energies. And I'm thinking about how to create more of those spaces in my life. Some friends and I and I have had the idea for quite some time to do a writing retreat of some sort. Yeah. You know, and one not project oriented, which is so much of what we do, especially uh, as academics, which is I got to get this out. I got to get that out right now. We don't want anything project oriented. We really want to focus on the process the joyful part of the process and what that would look like if we got like-minded people together to just hold space together uh, somewhere where we could do that um, annually or biannually. I am thinking a lot about a project about continuing the ideas of unpacking these slivers of popular culture for their meaningful race politics. So one of the things I'm intellectually excited about is how racial politics work in the spaces where we would swear up and down there are no racial politics. I love those spaces, right? No, no, there's nothing with that. That's just what I like. It's just my preference. I just enjoy, you know? Um, so right now that looks like like this, you know, this treaties I've got going on about, you know, how Hallmark movies are a site of white women's racial identity formation. Ooh. I know. I know they're going to kill me. But I love those. I love those where I know when I'm writing it, I already know they're mad. That's that's fun. That's that. That sounds. Like fun. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Yeah. 
this, this, you know, 2020, we have seen so much civil unrest. We have seen so too much black trauma. Um, we have seen the global pandemic and black and brown folks dying at larger numbers than everybody else disproportionately. Um, everybody wants to throw 2020 in the toilet um, mm -hmm. and start over. Yeah. But I want to ask you, can you share with us a moment, some moments of joy or even a moment of joy from 2020 as we are approaching the end of the year and everyone's looking forward to 2021? What have you gleaned that has brought you joy this year? Let me tell you, it's been so weird to be having what for me personally is one of the best years of my life amidst so much collective trauma and pain and disruption. But it is true. I have had... I'm at the tail end of a cycle, a 10 year cycle of my life of just grinding, uh, you know, just waking up every day going, well, Lord, I guess I'll do it again <laughs> <laughs> day after day. And that for me culminated this year. You know, 2020 was a round year. So uh, I started 2010 embarking upon public writing and like academic scholarship on the things I do now. Uh, and so I'm closing out a 10 year cycle and, you know, and bless my little pee picking heart. I think I, I did it right. You know, I did what I came to do. Um, so there's a sense of closure to me this year that feels like success. You, I mean, I made it, I survived it. You know what I mean? I, I survived it and I'm still here and I'm still standing and I'm still curious I am still interested in people and things, you know, life hadn't beaten that out of me. That feels like a win in 2020. If life hasn't beaten out of you the things that you love or enjoy um, or your curiosity, your openness about the world, that to me feels like success. You know, we're still here. We're still standing. Uh, this is the year I moved back to North Carolina, which is where I'm from. I uh, took a new job at uh, UNC. Coming home feels particularly good. Uh, I'm very proud of what that means, that I come home as a person ready and able to cast down my buckets as, you know, uh, Du Bois says, uh, uh, his arch rival says, cast down my buckets, you know, but to grow these roots where my roots have come from. Really uh, pleased by that. And I'm just always happy when I can look around at my family as well. And again, kind of laughing ruefully, my, like my great aunts and uh, my mother knows, you know, they're like, mm, they, these people sure got some problems on their hands. Like, they're fine. They look at Newsbo and they call me and they're like, mm, yeah, but I'm all right. You know, I love that about us. <laughs> and I'm back home where I can see that face to face. And that's so edifying. There's nothing like watching some old Black women sit around and go, mm, that's just, it fills me back up. So I'm really proud of that. I'm, I'm always proud of, this was a year that several of my students who I've worked with the longest have had really breakout years organizing their own conferences and taking to the streets and taking care of people, organizing mutual aid on the ground for the people who have been protesting. Listen, we owe, we owe those people who put their bodies in the streets, so many of them young people, but not all of them, who put their bodies on the line for the last year to remind us of what was at stake. And I'm so grateful to them that I do whatever I can. You know, I funnel money, we funnel underground resources. I steal from my institution for you all day long. You know, we do what we can to keep them edified and out there um, on the streets. And so I'm so grateful to them. And so what looked like chaos to other people actually gave me a lot of hope 
people cared. They were paying attention and they were, you know, they were sacrificing. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's a lot bad about 2020, but we, we, we still here. We still here. We still I feel here. pretty good about that. Beautiful. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Is there anything else that you would want to leave with our audience? Anything that you are looking forward to working on a project that you're working on right now? What, what, what would you like to share? Well, of course, I invite everybody to check us out at Here to Slay because it is we're just having so much fun there this year in the midst of, again, a traumatic year. We are having a ball. And I think our guests are, too. And I love the conversations that we are having there. I think they're both unique and not, you know, they won't be unique to black folks who are listening. Um, but I think it is still special to have those spaces uh, carved out where we can do that. And, you know, and the freedom that we have on that show, Roxanne and I own it. And it's so often, so often here lately, we're talking so much about what it means to be black women and to be free, free to shape our own platform, our own product, our own thing, our own vision. Um, and we would love to share that freedom with other folks. Um, and uh, to keep an eye out on some of my uh student collaborative work that we're working on. We've been talking to Black women who've been hustling throughout the pandemic, and we've got some work coming out on that uh, here shortly. Uh, And folks can always find me. Oh, go to my assistant, Lauren, has been redoing and overhauling my website and uh, digital presence. And I should give her loves and shout outs and tell people to check out trustymc.com for that new work, because that's been fun. Awesome. Well, Tressie, thank you so much again for joining us. I'm really grateful and just continued blessings and good wishes and good energy and juju to you as you continue to just live free. Listen, thank you. Same to you. Uh, Stay safe and well and happy in Jamaica. It's a great place to be happy, girl. It's a great place. It is. So much Black joy surrounds me. Listen, I love Jamaica. Yes. So cheers to you. You made some good pandemic choices. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. All right. Take care. You too. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.